0: In this time of worship, as we open your word, I pray, Lord, that we would open our hearts as well. I ask, Holy Spirit, that we would hear from you, that you would teach us through your word, that you would speak to our hearts, feed our souls, that we would be strengthened in our faith in you, in our obedience of what it means to trust and follow you. May we learn with a deeper appreciation, a greater understanding that in you alone we find the contentment our hearts long for. Help us to understand that, Lord, now as we open your word and seek you. In Jesus' name, amen. I read this uh, past week about a couple of shopkeepers They were bitter rivals. Their stores were directly across from each other, and they would spend each day keeping track of each other's business. When one of them would get a customer, he would look at the other and smile in triumph. One night an angel appeared to one of the shopkeepers in a dream, and the angel said, I will give you anything you ask. But whatever you ask, your competitor will receive twice as much. Would you like to be rich? You'll be rich. But he'll be twice as wealthy. Do you wish for a long and healthy life? You can. But his life will be longer and healthier. What is your desire? The man frowned and he thought for a moment and then he said, Here's my request. Strike me blind in one eye. Now, what is it about us as people that we're never satisfied with what we have? Our neighbors buy a new car, and we see them pull up in their new car, and we think, you know what? I'd like to have a new car. In fact, I'd like to have that car. How come they have that car and I don't? You're on your way to work, and you see this motorhome leisurely rumbling down the road, and you think, why can't that be me? Why do I have to go to work instead? We even do it in friendships. I read about a lady who said, I'm allergic to fur. Whenever I see my best friend in one, I get sick. So what causes us to be this way? The Bible calls it coveting. It steals our satisfaction and leaves us with a hollow sense of dissatisfaction. The advertising world has mastered the art of crafting the desire to have more and more. We think if we have more, we'll be happier. If we have more, it'll make us content. But in reality, the desire for more only makes us more unhappy. Isn't that true? One person, Dennis Robinson, said this, and one of the weaknesses of our age is the inability to distinguish between greeds and needs. Well, today I want to wrap up the Ten Commandments with you. The Tenth Commandment, found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, the final commandment that God gives us, is this, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. The word covet is one of those interesting words. And when you put it in the context of Scripture, we have to ask ourselves, what does the word covet mean? Let me give you a brief and simple definition. To covet means to have the wrong desire for that which is not rightfully mine. To covet is to have an unholy desire for that which is not mine to have. The Bible warns us that we're not to covet. But the Bible does not say that it's wrong to want things in and of themselves. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, it says that God is the one who gives us the ability to earn wealth. To want wealth is not bad. It's the heart from which you desire it for is the problem. James says every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Every good thing you have in your life, guess where that came from? It came from God. God made the world you and I live in to be filled with beautiful and wonderful things, things that you desire, and it's good to desire those things. He wants us to desire them. The problem is when we want things that are not ours to have. And God says there are some things that are off-limits. They're not yours to want. In fact, if you go after them, they will harm you. So it almost doesn't need to be said, does it? Why do we need this commandment? You shall not covet anything that your neighbor has. But let me kind of walk through a couple of reasons as I kind of cement this commandment in its context to draw out the fuller significance of why this commandment is so important for us to understand. So why do we need this commandment? Because all the other commandments, all nine of the commandments deal with the outward. They deal with the action, our actions. But this one commandment, unlike all the rest, deals with the inward. It deals with our attitude. It deals with our heart, the place where we really live. The place where we really love and understand obedience and a love relationship with God that he wants us to have with him. You see, the heart is the one place that we cannot feign an obedience to God. This commandment reminds us something very important. That is this, that God is not only fully aware of what is happening on the outside of your life, but God is fully aware of the thoughts and intents of your heart as well. First Chronicles chapter 28 says, The Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. First Samuel 16, 7 says, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So this commandment, unlike all the rest, sums up all the commandments that God is looking for people to love him, to obey him, to serve him, to know him from their hearts. Let me give you one more reason as I thought about this commandment that is so important. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, before God gave the Ten Commandments, He prefaced all of them by saying, This, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God is reminding them before He gives the Ten Commandments of who He is. He is the one who rescued them. From a miserable life of slavery. And what made that misery even worse was that there was no hope of rescue. But God did the impossible. He rescued the people of Israel. But he did more than that. He brought them out into a broad and barren, lifeless desert. A place that was completely incapable of sustaining millions of peoples. And in that barren desert, God provided for every need that they had. They didn't have water. On more than one occasion, God provided fresh, cool, satisfying water to satisfy the needs of millions of people. In fact, in one instance, God brought water from, of all things, a rock. God provided satisfaction for their thirst. There was no food. So every day, God would deliver heavenly bread at their doorstep for over 40 years. God provided water. He provided food for them. There was no city of refuge, no wall behind, no place of security. They were sitting ducks in the desert. And yet the Bible says God raised up a wall of fear between them and their foes. God took care of their security. He was their protector as well. There were no clothing stores, no outlets. There were no J.C. Penney's or Duluth's or T.J. Maxx or Dell Souls. You know what? There were not even any thrift stores out there. And yet the Bible says this, that God miraculously preserved their clothes, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 4, for 40 years. Now, some of you, like me, have t-shirts in your drawer that is still 20 years old, and you think they're just fine, but your wife says, God is not preserving them like you think. (laughs) You see, God took care of every need that they had. Now, why was God doing this? Why was he saying to them, I am the Lord your God? who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He was saying in that one verse, reminding them, that I am the one who has provided for every one of your needs. I was there. I knew your needs. I took care of them in advance before you were even aware of them. I took care of all your outward needs. Now I'm giving you my Ten Commandments to take care of your inward needs, to feed your souls, to provide and protect for your souls. You see, in all this, God is saying, I want you to remember, I am the one who is the answer to your quest for contentment. The very heart of the Tenth Commandment is simply this, is that God is enough. God is enough. Would you say that with me? God is enough for me. God is enough for me. That's what David said in Psalm 23, verse 1. Didn't he say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Asaph the seer said in Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. God is enough. That is the one lesson that God wants us to learn again and again as we walk through the pages of Scripture, that he is the one who provides for us, and that's the one lesson that he wants us to get from this 10th commandment. So this morning, I want to do a couple of things with you. I want to look at ways that always wanting more, uh, what that does to you. I want to kind of unmask the perils of coveting. And then I want to look at how can we learn to be satisfied. Those two, two simple things. So first of all, what does always wanting more do to us? I want to unmask some perils, if you will, of coveting. There are a number of stories in the Bible, aren't there, of people who coveted that exposed the perils of wanting with an unholy desire what is not ours. But the one story that almost immediately came to mind as I began to think through this 10th commandment was a story of the original Grapes of Wrath version. Now, this is long before John Steinbeck came along and wrote the Grapes of Wrath. This is the first... Story of the Grapes of Wrath. It's about two men who both desired the same vineyard. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings chapter 21. I want to read for you this passage that tells the story of what an unholy desire will do to you in your life. Many of you are familiar with this story, but listen as I read through these 29 verses. Now, it came about after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel besides the palace, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vineyard and a garden, because it is close beside my house, and I will give you a better vineyard than it is in its place. And if you like, I will give you the price of it in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab came into his house sullen and vexed. Now, let me just pause right there. If you read the previous chapter in the last verse, it says, So the king of Israel went to his house sullen and vexed. You see, Ahab has a problem. He is sullen and vexed. He's a miserable character. And there's a good reason he's a miserable character, because in the previous chapter, God has said, because you've disobeyed me, your life is going to pay the price So now he hears another disappointment. He does not get the vineyard that he wants, and so he is sullen and vexed. Because the word which Naboth, the Jezreelite, had spoken to him, for he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father's, and he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and ate no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, How is it that your spirit is so that you are not eating food? So he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it pleases you, I will give you a vineyard in its place. I to find out where I was at here. Where was that? Anybody know where I was at? Do I hear eight? Okay. Thank you. Jezebel's wife said to him, "Do you now reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite." So she wrote letters, Nahab's name, and sealed them with the seal, his seal, and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. Now she wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two worthless men before him and let them testify against him, saying, You cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the men of a city, the elders and the nobles who lived in the city, did as Jezreel, Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it was written in the letters which she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the people. Then two worthless men came in and sat before him, and the worthless men testified against him and even against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth, cursed God. And the king, so they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Now we don't read, is in Second Kings chapter 9, verse 26, is that Ahab not only stoned Naboth, but he also stoned his sons. Then they sent word to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. When Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give to you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel who is in Samaria, behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you, you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you, because... You have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon you and will utterly sweep you away and will cut off from from Ahab every male, both bond and free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahiah, because of the provocation which you have provoked me to anger and because you have made Israel sin. Of Jezebel... Also, the Lord has spoken, saying, The dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. The one belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat, and the one who dies in the field, the birds of heaven will eat. Surely there is no one like Ahab who had sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord, because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. He acted very abominably in following idols, according to all the Amorites, Had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the sons of Israel. It came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. Then the Lord, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he humbled himself before me, I will not bring this evil. It is evil in his days, but it will bring it upon his house in his son's days. Quite a story. It is a story that fits the caricature of covetousness in so many ways. It is a story that I think teaches us the perils of covetousness in at least three ways. One is that when we are smitten by covetousness, it deceives us. Then it defiles us, and then it destroys us. Well, first of all, it deceives us. You see, the reality I've learned is this, is that all of us struggle with a condition, an ailment of covetousness. Many of us suffer from it, but we don't really like to admit it, do we? We tend to treat covetousness as a minor sin, but it's the major reason we are unhappy. This is especially true for gloomy King Ahab. Ahab's miserable reign, lasted for 22 years. He was the eighth king in a long succession of 19 kings, all of which were evil. Ahab and his father Omri were the most wicked of all the kings. But what made Ahab a notch worse, perhaps even than his father, was his equally wicked and evil wife, Jezebel. There was no one like him who sold himself to do evil, it says, in the sight of the Lord, because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. Well, the story goes, one day Ahab is walking around his palace, and he looks out his window, and he sees this luscious vineyard of Naboth. Now, you have to understand, the nation of Israel had just gone through a three-year severe drought. Everything was surviving to live. But as he looked out the window, I imagine that he saw this, this very lush and... and ripe grape vineyard going on. And he realized, you know what? I'd like to have that vineyard. And the more he thought about it, he thought, you know what? I really want that vineyard. And the more he thought about it, he thought, you know what? I've got to have that. How am I going to get that vineyard? So he decides to arrange a meeting with Naboth. He tells Naboth that, hey, Naboth, if you want to get out of the grape business altogether, I'll buy your vineyard. Or if you'd like, I'll give you one better than that. But I have to have your vineyard. Naboth reveals that he knows his Bible. And he says to him, he says, there's no way that he could give the king or anybody his vineyard. The land was not his to give. It, it belonged to God. It was given to his family by the Lord. You see, in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23, God says this, The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. Naboth knew his Bible, and he knew this land belonged to God. It was not his to give. Now, what's unique about Naboth is he shines as a man who had not turned his back on God like so many others in his day. He was not about about to violate God's law, even for the king. It's interesting, you have to read between the lines, but you get the sense here that, that Ahab probably respected the piety of Naboth because he lets the issue go. He doesn't force it, doesn't push it. He sees Naboth's love for God, his desire to obey him, and he lets the issue go. But the story gets really interesting from here because Naboth does what any um, spoiled tyrant does. He begins to pout when he doesn't get what he really wants. In fact, you get the sense that he's pouting so much his lower lip protrudes from his face and his, his chin begins to quiver with emotion. And it's a wonder he doesn't trip over his lip as he makes his way back to the palace. As he goes back to the palace, he slams the door shut in his bedroom, throws himself on the bed, faces the wall, and begins to brood. He is a spoiled tyrant of a king. Dinner time rolls around, and his wife, Jezebel, notices that his place is empty at the table. Now, you get the idea that he's not the kind of guy to miss a meal. So something must be really important going on. She goes to his room and she does what any good wife will do, and she says, so what's eating you? And he pouts, I wanted to buy Naboth's vineyard, and he wouldn't sell it to me. And she could see his lips sticking out and his chin quivering with the emotion. And she's wondering, aren't you the king of Israel? Don't you own it all? Can't you take possession of it if you want to? You're the king. And she says, don't you worry about it. Verse 7, she says, take joy in your heart. The vineyard is as good as yours already. She decides to come up with a plan. And by the way, just so you know, never trust a Jezebel's plan for your life. It never ends well. She comes up with a plan. She decides to send letters to all the elders, the nobles of her land, to proclaim a fast. Now, a fast, not a feast, but a fast. Now, why did she proclaim a fast? Because a fast was something you proclaimed to show humility before God that he might remit or remove his wrath from the land. In this case, it was not only a fast... But they were trying to seek out the scapegoat, and I imagine the reason she was calling this fast was in light of the three-year severe drought they'd just gone through. And she wanted to find a scapegoat of why this had happened. Someone had to pay for the calamity, and unfortunate Naboth was that person. So it tells us three times in this passage the two worthless fellows, people that were absolutely worthless in their lives they decide to lie and they say before naboth in front of all the people you're the scapegoat you're the reason this calamity has happened because you cursed God and you cursed the king and of course that was a capital punishment and they took him out and they stoned him and second kings tells us that they not only stoned him but they stoned his sons as well implying that ahab was hoping there would be no more heirs to lay claim to the land ensuring that it would always be his So the vineyard is finally, finally in Ahab's hands, but his joy is only short-lived. While he's going to secure the spoils of his ill-gotten gain, that pesky prophet Elijah shows up and confronts him, and Elijah gives Ahab a frightening prediction. He tells him, because he sold himself out for evil, that now Ahab's life, his wife's life, and his children's life will pay the price. Interesting, in the chapter before this, God had said the same thing because of Ahab's disobedience. What this did for Ahab was it totally destroyed his ability to enjoy this vineyard that he had coveted. He had done evil in the sight of God, and God said, you're going to pay for it. It is not your vineyard to have. He says of Jezebel, he says, the dogs will eat Jezebel in the area of Jezreel, and that the dogs will lick up the blood. Where they licked up Naboth's blood, they will lick up your blood as well. And with that, he leaves. Now, Ahab's disastrous life wasn't a complete waste. I think there's some valuable lessons we can learn about covetousness, is that it deceives us It defiles us, and then it destroys us. Let me give you several aspects of how it deceives us. What we covet will never be enough. What you covet in your life, what you desire with an unholy desire, will never, never be enough. Now, Ahab had the entire kingdom. He had land. He had wealth. He had servants. He had all these things. But he felt poor because he did not have that one vineyard. English writer Samuel Johnson writes, Our desires always increase with our possessions. The knowledge that something remains yet unenjoyed impairs our enjoyment of the good things before us. Our desires always increase with our possessions. Johnson's words describe Ahab to a T. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, those who love money will never have enough. And the implication behind money is anything that you love that you think will satisfy, you'll never have enough. So what we covet will never be enough. Second, I see that what we covet will never last. It will never bring the lasting satisfaction we long for. By murdering Naboth and his sons, Ahab hoped to gain permanent ownership of the vineyard. But Naboth had reminded Ahab, the land was not his to give. It belonged to God. And the reality is this, is that you don't own anything in this life. Did you know that? The Bible says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 7, You came into the world without nothing, and you will leave the world without nothing. You own nothing. You are a steward for a short period of time of all that God has given you. The clothes on your back. The wealth that you have, the home that you have, is all on loan to you for a short period of time, and someone else will get it after you. What we covet, what we think will bring ultimate and lasting satisfaction, never will, because it'll never last. Proverbs says, in the blink of an eye, wealth disappears, for it will sprout wings and fly away like an eagle. (laughs) There's a third aspect to being deceived and that is what we covet will never ultimately satisfy it will never ultimately satisfy covetousness will always lead us to obtain, believe that if we could obtain what we're looking for we'll find that sense of satisfaction isn't that true? how many times have you thought you know if I could just have that that new truck if I could have that new truck man the world would be whew, it'd be great I'm not just picking on guys here I know gals like trucks too and gals, you think, you know, if I just have that, that new piece of jewelry, oh, I'd be so satisfied that other piece... Now, some be go, that's, that's not for me. jewelry's not for me. Okay, what is it for you? You see, sometimes we believe if I just have whatever it is that I don't have, it will bring the ultimate satisfaction. And the reality is when you finally get it, guess what you find? Is that it doesn't ultimately satisfy. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness wrote Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. You see, the reason you'll never find satisfaction in that new truck or that new ring or whatever it is you're looking for is because you were made for more than this world. And therefore, your soul will never be satisfied with all the wealth of the entire world. Jesus said it best. He said, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? God knows that you are made for eternity. You are made for a world bigger and better and eternal. This world will never satisfy you. And part of the deception of covetousness is you think, if I could just have, if I could just have, as you look around the world, and the reality is it never satisfies. You've learned that lesson time and time again, but the real definition of learning, by the way, is that I change. You've experienced disappointment what you have By getting what you have and finding it doesn't really bring satisfaction. But have you learned that getting everything you want does not bring the satisfaction your soul longs for? This world can never satisfy your soul, even if you had the whole world. What we covet will never ultimately satisfy. It deceives us. Second, it defiles us. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew or Mark chapter 7, verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Jesus' words are like an x-ray of God in the human heart. And Jesus points out, it's not the things on the outside that destroy us, it's the things on the inside that defile us, that mess us up. The late pastor, Adrian Rogers, said it well. He said, a man is not an adulterer because he commits adultery. He commits adultery because he is an adulterer. A man is not a thief because he steals. He steals because he is a thief. A man is not a liar because he tells lies. He lies because he is a liar. These things come from within, come from without him. That's what Jesus is saying, that the real problem in our life is not the temptation, not the allurement of the world. The real problem is our own heart. It is mastered and controlled and deceived by sin. The Apostle Paul made this great discovery Now, I want you just to imagine for a moment the Apostle Paul is a young Pharisee, proud. And one day he was taking a religious inventory, a moral inventory of his life, and he pulled out his handy Ten Commandments from his back pocket, and he began to check off all the religious boxes. And he came to the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And he thought, hmm, yep, I've kept that one. So he checked it off. You shall make no idol for yourself. Got that one, too. No problem. He checked it off. And he walked through each one of the commandments. He was not a murderer. He was not an adulterer. He was not a thief. He always told the truth. And then he came to the tenth commandment, You shall not covet. And it wrecked his life. Just about the time he was about to cross the the finish line of moral perfection, the bottom dropped out from his world. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 7. What shall I say then, or we say then, is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Now what is the one commandment that he realized that he had broken, in which he had broken all of them? You shall not covet. He had been a perfect Pharisee. He had outwardly kept all the law, but inside he realized that he had failed to keep the Ten Commandments because he had broken all of them in his heart. And the reality is there's a little Pharisee in all of us, isn't there? All of us think that we're perfect. All of us think that we're good. All of us think that we've arrived when we morally or outright look good. But we know in our hearts that we've coveted, we know in our hearts that we've lied. We know in our hearts that we've stolen. We know in our hearts that we've committed adultery. We know in our hearts that we've stolen things. And that's what Paul realized. Francis Schaeffer said this, Thou shall not covet is the internal commandment which shows the man who thinks himself to be moral that he really needs a savior. The average such moral man who has lived comparing himself to other men and comparing himself to a rather easy list of rules can feel like Paul. That he is getting along all right. But suddenly, when he is confronted with the inward command not to covet, he is brought to his knees. Paul was brought to his knees." He said, no matter how good you think you are on the outside, God knows your heart. And someone might say, you know, I've never broken the Ten Commandments. But you cannot honestly say that in your heart, can you? All of us have wrestled with covetousness. Covetousness deceives us, and it defiles us as well, but it destroys us as well. What we ultimately covet will only bring regret. You see, I suspect that from the day that Ahab acquired that vineyard, could you imagine what it was like for him as he stood in that palace and he looked out over that vineyard from those days forward? Every time he looked at that vineyard and he realized that he'd actually secured what he wanted, do you think there was joy in his heart? Do you think there was satisfaction? I think because he put on sackcloth and ashes and he humbled himself before God when God confronted him, I think that every time he looked at that vineyard, there was a sense of shame and guilt and remorse. He could never thoroughly enjoy what he had in fact taken with an unholy desire. It destroys us. It destroys us. You see, one of the most common ways that we're destroyed, especially in America. And by the way, we live in the richest, most affluent country in the entire world. I've been in India, where laws are merely a suggestion, where the poverty is beyond description, where the ability to go on to to gain things in life is an impossibility. I've seen children begging next to the highways that have no legs, have no hands, because of poverty. Poverty. We are the most affluent, wealthy nation in the entire world. And the greatest disease that we struggle with is a love for money. The Apostle Paul says, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation. Now, I want you to notice, he doesn't say they're rich. He says those who want to get rich. One of the biggest things that we struggle with in America is the desire that it's okay to be rich. I want to be rich. And oftentimes that leads to an unholy dissatisfaction that we have. So Paul says, But those who want to get rich follow the temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many a griefs. When you make money, the pursuit of happiness in your life It will only destroy you in the end. And the bottom line is the 10th commandment shows us that we need a savior. We need something more than this world can offer our sin-broken lives to satisfy our hearts. Jesus said these words, Beware and be on guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of possessions. Your life does not consist of your possessions. You've worked hard for what you have, and you should enjoy it. And it's okay to want those things. But when you want those things at the price of wandering away from your faith, at the price of wanting them more than anything else, you'll never be able to enjoy them. Former president of Wheaton Bible College, Philip Ryken, says this, As long as we base our sense of contentment on anything in the world, we will always find some excuse to make us miserable. Our problem is not on the outside, it's on the inside. And therefore, it will never be solved by getting more of what we think we want. If we do not learn to be satisfied in our present situation, whatever it is, we will never be satisfied at all." So true, isn't it? How many of you struggle with looking at your neighbors, looking at the world around you and thinking, you know, if I just had... If I just had, I'd have happiness, and we fail to see what we already have, and we fail to see that it's not how much you have that contentment lies in, but it's knowing what you already have is enough. Chuck Swindoll said this in a poem once. He said, it was spring, but it was summer that I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors, it was summer but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted. The warmth and blessing of nature. I was a child and it was adulthood that I wanted. The freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. (laughs) I was middle-aged, but it was 20 that I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was the middle age I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, and I never got what I wanted. Covetousness will deceive you. It will never be enough, it will never last, it will defile you, and it will destroy you. So the question for us as believers, as followers of Jesus, of Yeshua, is how then do we find contentment? How do we take Jesus at His word? To be on guard against every form of greed, to realize that our life does not consist of the possessions that we have. Let me give you two, if you will, I think, vital choices. I call them choices because they're choices that you alone can make. It's not about how much you have or don't have or how much you're going to get or how much you have lost. It's about a choice you make where you're at right now. The first I see is this, is to determine to be content with what God has given you. Determine to be content with what God has given you. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 says this, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money being content with what you have. For he himself said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Solomon said it this way, Enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Just dreaming about nice things is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Learning to enjoy and appreciate what you have is the antidote to discontentment because you see at its core covetousness is trying to find contentment in the wrong things A number of years ago I made an emergency flight to Seattle I went there to be with a family that was hurting deeply the mother was in the hospital at a very young age struggling to live from a very rare form of cancer. She'd been in that hospital bed for weeks, even months, separated from her family, separated from a life that she had known, and she struggled. As I spent time with the family over there praying, encouraging, letting them know that as a representative of our church family, that we were there with her. We were loving them. We cared about them. We were praying for them. It dawned on me as I was taking in all of this that here's a mom who was raising two young children, struck with a disease that she did not expect, separated from her family, separated from everything that she had known that brought her joy and satisfaction, delight that she had longed for. And wondering whether she'd ever go home. And for her to just spend one night at home with her family meant the world. Nothing special, nothing spectacular. Just to be home with her family meant the world to her. she later was able to go home. She regained enough for health to reassemble her life somewhat, but not many years later, God called her home. She reminds me that contentment is enjoying what you have and realizing what you have is more than you think it is. Those simple things you take for granted in life that you think are not enough to bring the happiness, the contentment you're looking for. Be thankful that you have them. They bring more contentment, more joy, more satisfaction than you think they do. Be content with what you have. Only you can make that choice. Second, delight in knowing that God himself is the source of our contentment. Delight in knowing that God himself, not the world, not your friends, not your spouse, not your things, but delight in knowing that God himself is the source of your contentment. Augustine said it so well. He said, as there is nothing greater or better than God himself, God has promised himself to us. Shall God shall be the end of all our desires, who will be seen without end love without cloy that is deceitful excess and praised without weariness as there is nothing greater or better than god himself god has promised us himself solomon in all his wisdom understood this when he said in ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 25 he said for who can eat or enjoy anything apart from god For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from God? God alone is the source of our contentment. David said in Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. God is the source of contentment we're looking for in our lives. He is the one who brings the ability to enjoy all that you have. Had he not given you that ability, you would not enjoy it. Randy Alcorn in his little book called 50 Days of Heaven captures this well. He says, flowers are beautiful because God is beautiful. Rainbows are stunning because God is stunning. Puppies are delightful because God is delightful. He is the one who gives us the ability to enjoy his creation and to see his hand in it, that he is the one who brings contentment. God is the creator and the lavish giver of contentment. Paul understood this in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He said, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will He not also in Him, with Him, freely give us all things?" God has promised that when you have Christ, you have everything, more than your imagination or your heart can begin to embrace, contentment, pleasures forevermore, but they're found in God. Alone. Alcorn, reflecting on it in this verse, he said, The God who gave us his Son delights to graciously give us all things. And these things are an addition to Christ. But they are never instead of him. They come along with him. If we didn't have Christ, we would have nothing. But because we have Christ, we have nothing everything. You see, one of the lies that the world wants to tell you is that Jesus is a crutch for you, that Jesus is simply one choice among a multitude of choices, that He is an alternative means to finding true satisfaction. But God does not offer us His Son as an alternate mean to satisfy us. He offers His Son because He is the only means to satisfy us. And He knows our needs before we know them. He knows the depth of them greater than we know them. And He alone knows how to bring satisfaction to our souls. You see, it is in Jesus Christ alone that we find forgiveness. And in that forgiveness, we find the freedom of guilt and the shame the remorse in our lives that we struggle with because of the sins in our life. It is in Christ alone that we find eternal peace and joy and acceptance and security and belonging and purpose. It is in Christ alone that we find the satisfaction our souls long for. It's in Christ alone that we find that He is the Good Shepherd of Psalm 23 in John chapter 10. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And when we learn that secret and we make that choice to trust Him, we realize that Jesus is not simply an alternate alternative to joy. He is the only answer to the joy that we long for in our lives. You see, God makes a promise, an amazing promise, more than once in Scripture. In Romans chapter 10, verse 11, He says, He who believes in Him who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will not be disappointed. You see, I think for many Christians, there's that lurking doubt in their minds. Am I missing out on something in life? Am I not going to be satisfied in life if I follow Jesus? What if I find Jesus and he's not enough? And yet the the promise that God gives every one of us is that whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Peter picks up on the same thing. Do you know why these two authors said this? Because I think Paul wrestled out in his own heart and his mind, is Jesus really enough? Peter wrestled with it. And Peter quotes, behold, I lay a stone in Zion, a choice stone. A precious cornerstone, and he who believes in Him will not be disappointed. Jesus alone is the one who brings satisfaction, the contentment in our lives. So we're faced with two choices. We can determine to be content with what God has given us now. It may not be everything you want. You may have had great loss. But you alone can make the choice to be content. And the reason you can make that choice to be content is to delight in knowing that God himself is the source of true contentment. But only you can make that choice. You see, I think all of us wrestle with covetousness far more than we think, don't we? we've broken every one of the Ten Commandments time and time again. And you do so on a daily basis and don't even realize it. And yet the Tenth Commandment stops us up short. It sobers us and it causes us to realize that we've drunk the poison of covetousness more than we're aware. And God says the reason you're discontent because you're looking for the wrong things to find satisfaction. In God alone, do we find contentment we long for. Will you pray with me? This morning as you've heard these words, as you've heard God speak through His Word to you, I know if you're like me, as I hear God's Word I am convicted, I'm convicted inwardly, and my guilt is exposed, and I realize my need for a Savior. I realize that I am guiltier, more plagued by the disease of sin than I had any idea. Maybe that's you this morning. You've been looking for contentment, for satisfaction, for fulfillment in life. And every time you've gained or pursued what you thought would bring that contentment has left, has left you feeling all the more empty. Jesus Christ and Christ alone is the only one who can bring that contentment to your heart and everlasting peace, and joy, and fulfillment, indescribable in human language. But He is offering that to you. He's not another, merely an alternate to happiness. He is the only answer to happiness. This morning, if you never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never come to Him and said, Lord Jesus, I, I need a Savior your word is right. It's an X-ray to my heart that there are things going on in my life that I would never dare tell anyone. Thoughts that I'm ashamed of. And I know that I need a Savior. Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And I confess to you right now that I am a lawbreaker. I've broken all those commandments, have done so easily, thoughtlessly, and now I realize and I ask your forgiveness. Lord, you alone are the only one who can bring contentment to my heart. God alone is enough. I realize that now, Lord, and I turn my life over to you And I ask, Lord, that you'd show me what it means to walk in relationship with you, learning day by day what it means to know that you are the source of my true contentment. That the promises in your word are true and sure. And my God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Lord, I believe those words to be true and I place my trust in you right now." If you've prayed that prayer, I want to welcome you into a relationship with a living eternal God who alone can satisfy your heart. But I want to shift my attention, and I want us to pray as a church family. and only you can do this from your heart with God. It's not the words I share. It's the heart you share them with. But would you come with me before God's throne of grace and cry out to God and ask Him, "Our Heavenly Father, You are more than enough forgive me for not realizing that. Forgive me for forgetting that. Forgive me for seeking satisfaction, fulfillment, pleasure with an unholy desire. I turn to you. I not only ask for your forgiveness, but I invite you, Lord, to have a deeper grip in my mind, my heart, to remind me on a daily basis that You alone are the satisfier of my soul. Thank You, Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen.